Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Debbie Wosco OBE, who is a multi-exit entrepreneur who is now focused on three pillars of diversity, health and wellness, and economic empowerment. Under that umbrella, she has most recently become the investor and co-chair of The Better Menopause, which empowers women's performance at midlife through science-backed products inspired by her community's needs. Now, I first met Debbie as the co-founder of the Incredible Albright, which is the leading career network for women in the UK, and she has just been a really inspiring person on my own journey of being a woman in business in the health and wellness space. So Debbie, I am genuinely so excited to have you on today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. I'm even better now that I'm here chatting to you. Thanks for having me, Alice. It's very rare that I get nervous about interviewing people. I have to be honest with you. But you do have this incredible CV. You are super high achieving. And really, I want to start by, I guess, understanding the context of that success. There aren't many people who wake up and just are instantly successful. And I always love hearing about the kind of the journey um, of how it takes years of hard work to, I guess, get to the point that they find themselves now. So tell me about your first business idea. How did it come about? What was that journey like for you? Well, I guess to sort of take a little bit of a, a step back and try and do that thing that we're all trying to figure out, which is who are we? And why do we make the decisions that we make? And why does our path take certain course that you know the good the bad and the ugly and I suppose for me one of the things that helps you to reflect is writing a book um which was one of the sort of toughest experiences of my life because it was like a sort of horrible essay crisis but AJ my Albright business partner and I wrote a book a few years ago and I did quite a bit of soul searching as part of that as to why I've ended up here I think a big part of it for me is always the story of women because my life's been about the story of women and I grew up in a household that I think you will recognize a bit Alice and that it was a, a Jewish immigrant household my family's third generation in the UK and the women in my life would never have described themselves as entrepreneurs because that's a bit of a fancy word but they were business owners and um, they were business owners not even necessarily by choice my grandmother who was an amazing role model um, outlived various husbands um, never learned how to reverse a car died at 97 and gave me lots of really important pieces of advice about always wearing matching underwear and making sure that you had your fuck you money um, in case a man ever pissed you off so she was quite hardcore this is sort of advice <laughs> Eight-year-old. We ran a, a chain of sweet shops and off licenses um, at the same time as being a mother. And my mother, I'm one of five children. My mother ran a business similarly. Um, I like to think that I'm from a long line in difficult women and that mm. I continue to carry the flag. But they are women who are um, 
family driven, but also who talk about money. And that conversation around money and business was a big part of my formative years in that I didn't know anybody who had a job that wasn't really in my family's DNA, everybody worked for themselves. So I think for that reason, and and Alice, you know, a lot of these stats that have been the, the soundtrack to my life, I'm 50 in February next year, which is that women don't start businesses, they don't raise capital for businesses, and they don't invest. And those stats, by the way, have got worse during my entrepreneurial lifetime, which is now nearly 25 years. And that's a shock. And I think to try and understand why women don't is complicated. But I do know that for me, you have to see it to be it. And the women in my family were doing it, even when it was hard. And it de-risked an entrepreneurial career. So if you'd ask nine-year-old me or 11-year-old me what I wanted to do, I would always say run my own business. I didn't really have any sense that that wasn't what women did because it was what the women in my experience did. So in that sense, I set up my first business when I was 25. I was a nerd. I'm an academic nerd and still very bookish sort of person. So I had a very sort of classical education. I was a management consultant and that was all pretty standard. But I always wanted to do my own thing. And again, Alice, for you and, and maybe for some of the women listening, I think the younger you get started, the better, because one of my life mantras has always got me into trouble is what's the worst that can happen. And the answer when you're 25 and you're launching a business is not a lot, because if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. And I think it matters much more into your 40s where you've got responsibilities, where life is life. I think getting going at a young age was amazing. I didn't know anything about anything. I knew a lot about, you know, Descartes, Cartesian circle, but that wasn't really going to help me very much in business. So everything I learned about cash flow, about pricing, about sales, about checking the bank account every day, about hiring the wrong people, which is a thing I still continue to do, I learned in that first business and I continue to learn today. Tell me about that first business because I think it's a really interesting one and I I don't really want to talk about it too much today because we want to focus on sort of more of the health and wellness space but it is interesting what you then went into. You describe yourself as being bookish, coming from a management background, management consultancy background. There was nothing in the stars that sort of said, oh, I'm going to go into a house swap business and everything starts in my eyes as a good idea and as serving a purpose in a world where okay there's a gap in the market there I can see that there's a solution that needs fixing let me do that Uh, sorry a problem that needs fixing let me be the solution to that and I've tried to do that within the health the wellness space I've seen constantly I'm trying to look for pockets of that's not being served these people aren't being spoken to this isn't working for this group of people it's always been trying to look forwards but I guess with yours it, it was genuinely just a, a kind of an idea and, and I'd love to hear just a little bit about that. Love Homeswap I think is an illustration that inspiration can strike at any time as an entrepreneur and um, for me and my Love Homeswap life so I'd had two businesses prior to that first business was an agency business second business was a participation sports platform so I'd had a couple of exits and I'd learned a lot about scaling up hiring firing raising capital in all of my businesses, I'm a very simple entrepreneur. There are plenty of people out there way more complex than I am. I need to be able to put myself in the skin of the consumer and that sort of to kill a mockingbird type way. You know, you need to put yourself in someone else's skin and walk around in it. And Love Homeswap was a story of having two young children who were two and three months going on holiday to a fancy place, having a terrible time because I was feeding one and the other one sleep. And we did a lot of watching TV with the sound off thinking, why are we here? And 
on the way on the flight on the way home, the movie The Holiday, um, the ultimate Christmas film, <laughs> was on where Cameron Diaz swaps home with Kate Winslet. And I remember thinking, does that even exist? Because that's the holiday that I wish I had had. Now, I think one of the things entrepreneurs have in common, because entrepreneurs come in many different shapes and sizes, and that's a message I really want to land to your female listeners, which is there's no one size fits all. You don't have to be a super brain. You don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be a number. You don't have to be anything. But I think the thing that you do have to have is curiosity. And that thing that you will have experienced, Alice, but you get you get a bit obsessed with a thing, don't you? And you think, well, is there an opportunity here? And so then I go quite deep. That's kind of how my brain works. So I look at everything and I looked online and I ordered and I kind of thought, well, there isn't really home exchange as a category is as old as the hills. You can kind of order up like a brochure, like a doorstop, you know, but there's nothing that feels very digital. This was in 2010, 11, something like that. So it was at the very beginning of um, Airbnb and Uber and what became known as a sharing economy. So when I got going with Love Home Swap, I, what did I do? I did the research. I thought I could see a commercial opportunity. And then I think the next step, as you will recognize, Alice, is you've got to build something. You can't just talk about a thing. You've got to create a prototype. One of the people that was really instrumental in me doing that was my brother, my youngest brother, Ben, who I've worked with in, in different businesses. But um, he's very much the yin to my yang, and he came in and helped me to build that. And then we took um, that very early home exchange, clunky, embarrassing. Someone sent me the logo the other day, which, I mean, there's nothing worse than old decks and old logos, right? They're just sort of really cringe. And it was at the beginning of it becoming normal. And I think this is a real lesson in how zeitgeist shifts to stay in a stranger's house, right? At the time, the investors were like, no one will ever stay in a stranger's home. You're mad, go away. So I think it also shows that you've got to be really stubborn and bloody minded and um my business partner will say one of my sort of only superpowers is I'm very good at who's behind the no I don't like a no so I get a no I'm like "Mm, that's interesting I'm just gonna kind of go around the no to get to a yes and I think what that shows is sometimes you're on the cusp of real behavior shift you've got to push on and that was love home swap and also i think it sounds totally effortless we sold it for 53 million in 2017 it was really difficult business they always are you're always on the disaster there were plenty of times we had a thousand pounds left in the bank account with wages to pay you know like it one of the points i really want to land because i think it can be off-putting to women is when it looks effortless and you said at the beginning that you know you felt you felt intimidated or the comments that you were writing all this time. like honestly this stuff is hard it goes wrong there's the story and you know this Alice you live in that world there's the image there's the interview there's the hair makeup nails and high heels and that is what really is bloody going on <laughs> and it was difficult but we did get there and it was a great outcome and it was also which I think is really important a great financial outcome. And one of the other reasons I do quite a lot of these conversations with amazing younger women than me, Alice, because I'm old enough to be your mum, is I think women need to talk about money and need to talk about getting rich and they need to get rich and they need to redeploy their capital and backing other women because that's the only way that we change some of these stats where we live in an environment where 1% of capital goes to back a female entrepreneur, 
2% at, at investor level professionals are female at, at my end of the um, uh, journey. Um, 25% of women over the age of 50 leave the workforce because they can't handle their menopause symptoms. So the odds are stacked against us. But the way that we change the conversation is by making money and being really clear that we want to get rich. And there's no shame in that. Oh my God, there's so much to unpack there. My first thing, because I'm going to go on to a couple of different points with that just off the top of my head. The first is being comfortable with iterations of a business and iterations of ourselves. And I think that it's a real key theme that has been across my life, my journey, my career, my success. If you think like, you know, I published three books under one name, decided that wasn't me, completely had to rebrand. You know, you, you talk about mistakes and I think that I like to describe them as iterations of ourselves. They're never failures as such. They're about, okay, shed that skin, move on. What have I learned? What can I take forwards? And I wondered if you had any advice for being comfortable with having iterations of maybe it's not even a business, it's yourself, but being comfortable with those different phases of who you are and what you're creating. And I think that it's something that I am definitely not 100% comfortable with yet is I always think, but this is my product and this is what I, I'm kind of, I love and I'm passionate about. And actually it's learning to be uncomfortable, I guess, with um, shedding some of the dead wood that's not working, basically, with, whether that's within ourselves or within the business. That's a complicated question. And so probably two levels to respond on. First is within the business, the product and the service changes all the time. I've had four exits and the business I ended up with was never the business I started with. I mean, Albright, which I'm sure we'll get onto, is a great example of that. Mm. Um, up until March 2020, I was building buildings, right? I was on a plane. We were in LA, New York, DC. The pandemic happened and I had zero revenue because <laughs> everywhere I was shut and I couldn't get on a plane. And then we became a digital platform, a content platform, an education service. Well, right? So be emotionally you attached to your ideas. I've, I've had some great chairmen and some terrible chairmen actually in my time, but my best ever chairman always said to me, don't fall in love with the business steps. And I think what he meant by that was you can't emotionally attach to the concept or to the business model or indeed to anything. Love Home Swap started life as I'm Cameron Diaz, you're Kate Winsler, you want to go to the Cotswolds, I want to go to LA, it's on. And we would have gone bust like that. The thing that changed it up was actually um, it looked much more like a timeshare business in that you could earn points through banking time in your home or second home as a tradable asset. So it, we created a three-way swap is what we called it, where you could be LA and I could be London and someone else could be Paris and we could, and that's the only way the business actually worked. So my, I want the movie, The Holiday Inspiration was a great place to start. You've got to start somewhere, but you've got to be prepared to let the data talk and also to have no short-term memories. One of my great life gifts. I can't remember. I just can't really remember. And AJ and I have that in common. So we're not emotionally attached to yesterday, mostly because we can't really remember what it was like. And in particular, we can't remember when it was really shit because we're endlessly optimistic. And I think educating yourself to be optimistic is important because you've got to keep going. Another big life lesson from my grandmother when things go wrong is, you know, you're going to lie down. I mean, she was tough, right? You're going to lie down the road and cry. You're going to get on with it because no one's going to do it for you. And I think the other thing for me is that I have a real love for life. 
and love for being in the world. I want to suck the marrow out of it in a way that can be a bit annoying. So I'm very high energy and I want to experience new things. But shit, things have happened, Alice. You know, I didn't anticipate I was going to be a single mom when my kids were two and zero. Um, You know, there's been some really, really hard times. But for me, work has always been a savior and change has always been a tonic. And recognizing that I think helps you to let go of things. I think in terms of yourself and who you are, I've had a business for every decade of my working life and I intend to keep on doing the same because I think, particularly if you're in a consumer-facing business, I mean, look, I have entrepreneurs come to me with really complicated AI SaaS businesses where I think, amazing, you, you don't have to front it up. I've always had things like you where I've had to front them up. I think also eventually it's okay to say, I feel like a stand-up comedian in need of some new material. You know, I just can't be clean eating out. Or I can't I can't be that person anymore. I can't be the person that stands in front of the film The Holiday talking about homeschooling because I've done it two and a half thousand times and I'm going to scream. So I think that also means that your capacity for reinvention is super important and regeneration. But there's a brilliant quote in Hilary Mantel's first Wolf Hall book of the trilogy, where she puts these words into the mouth of Thomas Cromwell. And she says, the things you think are disasters in your life are not disasters, really. Almost anything can be turned around out of every ditch, a path, if only you can see it. And I've had that written down for a long time. I use it with my kids, much to their annoyance. But I think There's a big thing in that, which is out of every ditch, a path, if only you can see it. So it's all about mindset. It really is. And it requires discipline and it requires leaving the past in the past and not brooding and a lot of things that aren't easy. But I'm a massive believer in the positive power of personal reinvention and humor. I sometimes mm. I look back on some of that shit and I just <laughs> sort of laugh or I think, what were we doing? Or, you know, that's okay, right? You know, dark humor and the power of positive reinvention gets you a long way. I love that. I absolutely love that quote. I'm uh, My uh, my dad recently read Wolf Hall and I was like, wow, f- fair play to you. I need to have it on my list of things to read. Now, look, I think that, you know, all of that is, is so poignant and definitely the part about having different versions of yourself and being comfortable with, you know, dealing with a lot of shit, all of us, we all carry certain amounts of trauma, heaviness, um, you know, around with us. And I definitely think that it's how you let that shape you and, and, and not shape you as well, that we don't always wear our trauma as something that's, you know, needing to be aired and that we can actually use it as a, you know, I know some of the things that have happened with me that I, have used it as a way to be like, I'm going to be everything that that person thought I wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Or uh, yeah, just kind of using it as a, a springboard, I guess. I guess one of my things that I'm really fascinated by with you is I've met you. I think you're amazing. I think you're warm, you're kind, you're generous. You always have time for people. That is one thing I would say for you. Anytime I've ever seen you, you always have time to speak to me, to give me advice. Um, And I guess that in my eyes positions you as this kind of very generous person. But I wonder in business, particularly as a woman and particularly in those early days and perhaps even later on, whether you've had to create a level of toughness um, 
that has helped you to progress, uh, you know, a kind of outer skin, a bit of a woman in a man's world. I wonder how you've developed your character in the boardroom and whether that just came naturally to you or it, or it felt as though it was something that you needed to maybe develop in order to get to where you wanted to get to. I'm tough, um, but I hope I'm self-aware and kind and kindness is a big thing for me, but, in, but I'm probably kinder to you than I would be if you were a young man. <laughs> because I also feel like uh, there's a big thing for me, which sounds a bit cheesy, but about really making sure that young women can do it. I also have a 30 year old, I have a complicated family, 30 year old stepdaughter. So there's a certain type of young woman who's going out there trying to do a thing that I will have endless amounts of time for because I think that's how we win. Um, Anna and I talk a lot about Rhino Hyde. I think it's a chapter in our book, which is called Believe, Build, Become, How to Supercharge Your Career. I, I make about 40, you know, 0.4 of a pence for every book that's sold. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show yeah. notes. <laughs> um, the book's not going to make me rich. But I genuinely hope that we wrote something and it was about women supercharging their careers because we're being asked a lot of the stuff all the time. Um, because some of this stuff that you and I are talking about is universal. How do you do it? How do you get started? Who am I? Our first chapter is called Project You. How do I negotiate? How do I go into a room full of men and control the room, right? It's kind of, these are universal conversations. And I was 25 in my first business. I was young. I'm quite sure I was pretty, you know, it's, it's hard, right? And I always had to put my game face on. And I was thoughtful about what that meant. So I am glam. I always wear really high heels. I always have my hair done. It, it's a uniform for me, Alice. When I'm going in to do battle, I've got to be it. I couldn't do it in jeans or gym kit or a ponytail. I just couldn't. Like, I need to be in character. I think the other thing that we talk about a lot is preparation is not shameful. So there's a famous, I know I quote a lot, that's one of my things, a Winston Churchill quote about all of my best off-the-cuff remarks are well rehearsed, right? And and I um, really feel like that. I feel like I do tons of public speaking and radio and live TV and everything seems effortless. It isn't. It's rehearsed. It's practice. Women can practice. If I'm going into a big meeting, I will game the shit out of that meeting and AJ and I always say we game everything from dresses to delivery in those big, you know, we've raised a lot of private equity money. It doesn't just happen. So I think preparation is fine. Rhino hide is everything. So I, I talk a lot to young women. I have two children. My uh, daughter's nearly 13 and my son's 15. And one of the things that I talk to them about a lot is that they shouldn't worry so much about being liked. And the reason for doing that is if I look back on my young career self, so my 25-year-old founder self, I think I wasted a lot of time and emotional energy worrying about people liking me. I didn't have enough of a rhino hide or a thick skin. I was quite thin-skinned actually, because when you're a boss and you're that young and most people are older than you, you really obsess about how you come across are you liked? I think it's tough to figure out what your work personality is when that you're that young or who you are even because you're kind of acting. And I think um, where you get to 25 years later and one of the brilliant things about getting a bit older is you just give less of a shit about what people think. 
And I think I'm less of a people pleaser than I was then. And I think I've just done more work, whether that's through coaching or through therapy or anything, on what my values are. And being unashamedly focused on being a leader, you know, that is who I am. And I've kind of, you know, as my mother always says, darling, you were like this when you were two years old, you know, some of it's just me. But my values are about being kind and considerate and investing in other people and encouraging them. And I think if I can stay true to that and people don't like me, well, there you go, right? I think this is something that I'm struggling with at the moment. And it's really interesting that you bring it up. And I think it's a thing that a lot of women I speak to really struggle with is this almost juxtaposition of trying to be particularly, I'm thinking of front-facing social media-led businesses that use platforms like Instagram, like TikTok as a marketing platform in order to leverage a business. Um, There is an element of having to be split in two. Half of you is trying to be the face of the business, using that platform as a marketing opportunity trying to be quote unquote liked and at the same time trying to build a business where you can't rely solely on being liked in order to drive customers to your product and I think that it's it's really hard and I I do think this is one thing and in my experience this is not me speaking for everyone but in my experience I've, I recognize that I find it this, this is much more of a female thing a woman thing we have it within us that we want to be palatable and to be liked and to be you know um seen as kind and even you saying that you that you're kind I think that of course kindness is important but there are moments in which within business we can't be kind because we have to be do you know what I mean and I think it's about being comfortable with all parts of yourself and knowing that that's okay so hard and you know all bright that business was by women for women it was combining purpose with profit and they're not always easy bedfellows right you know it was saying we want to create better networks for women because networks in our career have been really important and they're not easy to find if you're female we want to help women upskill we want to help women make money we want to invest in women but we also need to run a business it's a for-profit business that had raised private equity capital and I think that is a dissonance often because what we did find is you say generous things about me and thank you, but not everyone would. Because I think when people worked with us in that business, which was a very big business, I think there was an expectation about how we would be and how we would behave in business that was unrealistic. I think that there was a confusion. You know, it's a huge, the eternal honor of my life to run a business that was 95% female and its workforce is extremely unusual. But for every achievement, there comes complication. Nothing is simple. Life is nuanced. You know, to be a female leader, you've got to live in nuance. But I think that's right. And I think, you know, I always used to say to my mom, Whenever there was press, because I've done quite a lot of politics, as I think you know, Alison, you know, I say to mum, don't read the comments in the Daily Mail, Christ. You know, people aren't, and you have this in a much more magnified way to me, Alice, because of the front window to your shop, which is on Instagram. And that's hard. But I think if that then translates not only to how difficult that is, but how people expect you to run a business, business is a business you know we always used to say about Albright to one another AJ and I it's not a charity you know you know it's it's really hard but people would often expect it to be and perhaps expect a series of behaviors from us that were not commercial 
So be commercial, be true to yourself, but be commercial and do what you have to do. You know, when you're running a business in difficult times, which you will be, you make difficult decisions and difficult decisions do get easier the more you make them. Not in a palatable way, but the first time I ever sacked someone when I was probably 25, it took me like three hours and reduced me to tears. And now, you know, it's not a brag, but I can get it done in 30 seconds, right? Because you just get better at doing difficult things. But as a leader, male or female, but particularly for women listening to this, you have to make tough calls. And the more experienced you are, the better support network that you have, the more that you can bite the bullet or swallow the frog, as I say to the kids, the more you just get used to it. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Talk to me about a time where you've actually found that really difficult. We've had some horrific times in this glossy, successful, multi-exit, OB, whatever the kind of beginning almost makes me cringe, but you know, we really have. Albright, we we had to lay off our entire US workforce um, during the pandemic, all of them. And we very carefully built it up. Um, You know, we had to totally changed the type of person, woman who worked in the business because the business changed. I mean, really difficult things, difficult conversations with investors, um, difficult conversations with senior members of the team. Change is really pivoting, which I hate as a word, but fundamentally changing a business in real time with what feels like the world watching and the clock ticking and the bank account draining is super hard and everything in between. You know, we talk a lot about women raising money. You and I have spoken about that a bit, Alice. And um, that with that comes responsibility because as soon as you bring investors into the business, you're committed to getting them a return. And, okay, that is easier for me now because I've got lots of people returns over long periods of time, but it's a hits business and you're only as good as your last hit. So, you, you know, only the paranoid survive is a bit paranoid, but kind of true which is that you're never done. And so if you're never done, the difficult decisions keep on coming. Beginnings are great. Beginnings of anything are great, right? You know, you don't know what's going to go wrong yet, but stuff will. (laughs) So I think that's the only thing I know for sure. And it's about how you deal with it, not what's going to go wrong. So let's go into how you deal with it, because as you said, stuff goes wrong. Um, I mentioned in my introduction about how health and wellness is a big component of you. I follow you on Instagram. I know that you're a big workout fan. I know that you're very into your health and well-being. So talk to me about how that props you up in business. Talk to me about how you entered into it. I'm pretty sure that when you started out in your career, you probably didn't have the healthiest approach to work life. I don't know. You can tell me a little bit about that, but I know that that now makes up a big part of how you take care of you, which is a big part of who you now are. And I'm really interested to know in, uh, you know, I guess, how you got into that journey of of recognizing that in taking care of you, you were taking care of the business, taking care of your success and actually bulletproofing that rather than running yourself into the ground, which which unfortunately is what happens to a lot of particularly entrepreneurs, startup founders. I've always been, I was sporty. So I've always had a sort of component of sport in my life, not really in my early 20s. Um, but from my sort of mid-20s onwards, so 25 years, I wake up and I train. I, I couldn't not do that. Um, it's very much, 
and it's part of a routine and routine is really important way that I keep going even when I don't feel like it so I just take choice out of my life in that kind of um sense that I don't want to I just don't even really entertain that so my kit goes out the night before everything goes out the night before the high heels and the dress go in the bag I'm ready I train early it's part of how I feel ready it's 45 minutes of my day to myself and I always do a class or if I'm traveling I follow an app partly I feel like I tell everyone what to do all day long and the last thing I want to do is just I'm like hopeless in a gym I can't train myself I need to follow something I can't run on a treadmill I I used to do Versa Climber. I can't look at the time and I don't want to look at my score. I used to do that endlessly. My life's like that. Why do I want to do that when I'm working out? I I don't need to track my thing versus the thing I used to run and do marathons. And that was all about the speed and the thing. And I've kind of left that behind. I have been through phases of chronically overtraining and doing two classes a day or more, which was really bad for me. Um, I've been through phases of doing way too much cardio which was not good for me either. And I feel like I found a balance partly through getting sick. So I, 18 months ago, I got um, bacterial pneumonia and pleurisy. I was super unwell in hospital and I had had a difficult time at work. I was in that kind of mindset where I was seeing a class, an early class and a late class. And, um, and as I recovered from that, I realized that I need to, I can train every day if I really mix it up. If I do two no impact sessions, if I take my hit down to twice a week, you know, and I work with someone to figure out the right mix for me. I don't like skipping a day. I know that's not amazing, but I've kind of got around that for me by doing these kind of very low impact sessions. So I never have the not wanting to do it issue. I have the doing it too much issue because it's control and it's release. And um, that is just as bad for you as not doing it at all. And it was not really to do with body, you know. Um, It wasn't kind of like Lycra pictures in my, my, you know, although I am sort of in pretty good nick for my age. It was to do, it was to do with my head, and it got too much because I had so much adrenaline, and the only way I could let it out. And I think this is another thing about embracing yourself more. When I was really having to perform at work, I needed to let it out somehow. Hence, I ended up doing these two sessions a day, and so finding other ways through that. Doing, I do therapy every week. That's been a really important additional release for me because for quite a long time, the only way I could get it out was through doing sprints or hitting a punch bag. And this is a huge conversation at the moment. And I think that you know, look, my journey is ever so similar exercise was my only coping mechanism for a lot of stuff that I was going through. Mine was, again, mine was a bit more about body. It was about control. It was about staying small and all of that being wrapped up in how successful I was, the image I was portraying and trying to keep that validation coming in as well from people saying, you look amazing. That was mine. What we learn, what we recognize, what I think we carry is that Um, exercise is a brilliant tool for us dealing with our mental health. We cannot deny that. Exercise is also 
brilliant for our health, but we can have too much of a good thing. And there is something to be said for having a toolbox of coping mechanisms rather than a tool. And I always speak about kind of widening that toolbox, having it as one thing, but not the whole thing. And I really respect you. I think it's it's just very refreshing to have someone that owns the fact that they're like, you know, I got it wrong. I did too much exercise. I think, you know, so many of us can kind of apologize for our mistakes or not own them, in, you know, in necessarily in such a confident way. And I, and I really value that you have kind of really said openly that there was, you know, a couple of moments where you got it wrong, but you've managed to find your way back. And sometimes it does take us hitting rock bottom. You know, many of us can imagine that rock bottom is probably going to be something for me anyway. Rock bottom would probably be something to do with my health mm. and that really putting me on a different cause. So yeah, I see that. And I think that I guess in a way that leads me on to rebuilding, finding wellness, finding balance. And maybe within that, you know, your new business opportunity, did that then lead you to, I guess, discovering where you now wanted to go in the workplace? Uh, one thing that I did see, and we can maybe come onto this later on your LinkedIn. I obviously had a little read of your LinkedIn for OK1. You're very active on LinkedIn. So I'd highly recommend following Debbie. LinkedIn influencer. My children find it totally embarrassing. You are. But you wrote a post about sisterhood. Mm. And sisterhood is a very interesting, I guess, word even. It's a very interesting thing to unpack for me as someone who maybe has a slightly more difficult relationship with my sister. Um but also you talk about the biological sisters and the ones that we collect along the way. And I love that. And I think I saw you recently in, in a members club and you were having a meeting and you had your sisterhood around you and I saw it and I got it straight away. And you were like, oh, this is this person. This is this person. You're with AJ, your business partner. And I, I'm just interested in what led you to, I guess, go down another route of empowering women in a different way. And, and, and I guess furthering that sense of sisterhood that you built with Albright that you're now furthering with, with this project. Well, women have been the great love stories of my life. Um, not romantically, I hasten to add, but my my relationships with my biological sisters, so I'm one of um, five girls, but also the amazing women I've picked up along the way have enriched my life and continue to in a way that I'm extremely fortunate to have. I think the other thing that's kind of in my family DNA or something I grew up with was stand for something. That's a big thing in our family, stand for something. And I think I, w I was brought up to believe that I've been given some gifts, partly because I've got a weird, like, nerd brain. And so you have to do something, you, know, you have to stand for something in the world, do something. So I've always had that sense of what is it that I stand for empowering women to be financially independent, I think comes from potentially being a, everyone in my family gets divorced, including me, you know, that, and really having this sense that women needed to be economically independent. And I was at an all girls school. So that was a big thing that we were brought up in that way to believe that that was really important. So that's been a sort of thread, I suppose, through everything that I've done in my work life. Albright for me was the business of my 40s. It was about network. It was about economic empowerment. It was about physical spaces that were female centric. So I'd never seen them, you know, and I'd grown up around, if you grew up in London in the sort of 90s and noughties around clubs and gentlemen's clubs, and I was at Oxford and there were enough of those to shake a stick at. So feeling like I wanted to subvert that, I'm quite a kind of, um, 
rebel in the sense that if I see the status quo and I don't like it, I take it upon myself to try and change it. It's why politics is important and female voices in politics are important and hard to have. So for all of those reasons, part of what's happening with the next chapter for me and the better menopause which is the business that Anna and I have just backed. Some of it's a personal story. It's always a personal story to do with, you know, home swapping or meeting AJ at a party, which is a story of all. But better menopause was getting sick, getting better, not knowing quite why I'd been so sick and recognizing that I was perimenopausal and I'd never even heard of that before. My mother certainly never talked about her menopause. It, she was quite tough. That would have been seen as a sign of weakness. Women of that generation just didn't really talk about it. I, mean, I had to say to her, mum, how old were you? And did you go on HRT? She was like, of course not, darling. That's not what people did. So, you know, there's just like a whole code of silence about this stuff. And it was starting to change in a, in a way, actually, the UK has been a real leader in having that conversation, some of which has been led by celebrities, Davina McCall, Mariella Froshtop, others talking about their menopause and recognizing that there was a moment and it's kind of a moment I like where it's like, okay, there's a zeitgeist shift. There's a way to build community and there's a way to shape commercial products. Those are always the things that matter for me. And to some extent, I can only ever do a thing if I feel really emotionally invested in it. And the topic that's driven me over the the 25 years of my career is women and work, women and money. And it's like, hang on a minute, 25% of women who are still working over the age of 50, bear in mind how many women leave the workforce after having kids and never return, are leaving again because they're not handling their menopause symptoms. Only 50% of women even see a doctor. 13 million women in the UK are in perimenopause or menopause at any one time. What? So to me, it's like, okay, Purpose, profit. I see the opportunity. I see the business. So the first product for the better menopause is the first probiotic developed for perimenopausal menopausal women. And part of the thought process there was after I got better from being sick and I had absolutely no gut bacteria because I've been on antibiotics for so long, the doctor in a conversation said, la, 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 la. And of course, your menopause symptoms are going to be a lot worse because you've got no gut health. And I'm like, what, stop? Say that again? I've heard about the Zoe app and I've heard about the gut brain continuum, but nobody's talked to me about the gut and women's health. And it's like, yeah, women have way more gut health problems than men do. It's well, why aren't we, why do we never talk about women's health? Why aren't we talking about it? So for Anna and I now, our next chat with the Better Menopause and other businesses that we're looking at in this space is to try and use our brain power, our personal brand, if you like, as successful entrepreneurs being of a certain age, to really showcase a conversation about this stage of women's life and this stage of women's health, beginning with the better menopause and the better gut. And we'll release more products that are very focused, science-driven products that we develop with Dr. Harper and Joe Lyle, who's the CEO of that business, is a qualified nutritionist. Another thing for us is just to back more women. You know this, Alice. I feel like, okay, we need more women to get started. Now, some of that is the young women that I endlessly have time for in So House or Bright, wherever. But also, women in their 40s could be amazing entrepreneurial CEOs. But back to my point on what's the worst that can happen, often for a woman of that age, it's just really hard, right? The responsibilities are too long. The mortgage has got to be paid. The kids are at school. The childcare's an issue. Okay, can we, with our... Um, a bird's eye view of this space of this 35 to 60 year old female consumer that we know inside out get more women founders starting businesses backed by Anna and I that target her 
particularly as you intro the opening in the health, wellness, diversity space. Because then in our own small way, we can drive some change and we can try and solve some of these problems and have more open conversations about what happens when women get older. It's like, yeah, very topical. And you do um, raise a good point that it comes at a time where there are thankfully voices like Davina McCall, uh, Cherry Healy, a guest on this podcast recently, others who are willing to kind of put their head above the parapet and say, I'm going to talk about this. And it has been kind of more normalized in conversation, less taboo. I think that one of the things that I really picked up on there is that point you made about, you know, when I started my business, when I started doing what I did, there was no risk. There was nothing that I really had to consider. It was just, oh, why not? You know? And yes, I've muddled my way through. And even now, you know, okay, there's a little bit more capital at risk. There's a little bit more kind of, uh, you know, risk in terms of I have staff now that I have to pay wages. But I think that you're right. There's, There's this big gap of women that are probably looking on places like social media and thinking, I can do that too, but the the risk is far greater in terms of just being able to start. And I think that's so interesting that you and Anna are going to explore, I guess, helping women in that space. How do you see that looking? I think, you know, we, we are working with Jo. She's the founder CEO of The Better Menopause. She's fantastic. We can co-create businesses with her. We can help to raise money. And we can do that multiple times across that space as backers, as investors. We come up with lots of ideas ourselves. But I think the way we see it working at this stage in our career is we want to partner with female CEOs to scale those businesses up. Also partly because I think that we're at our most dangerous if we can operate across a lot of different things rather than just one thing. And I think the way that we do that is through what we're calling a better life, the better life company. That's mine and Anna's kind of vehicle for thinking about how can we look at this whole vertical of her in midlife, if you like, and figure out what she wants and needs in different ways and empower different female CEOs to work with us to scale businesses that target her. One of the things that's kind of come up a couple of times across this conversation is is you being very comfortable with talking about money, with being successful, um, and with kind of almost being very um, comfortable with discussing your your wealth um, and you know selling companies for lots of money. I recognise this as something that I really struggle with. I struggle to talk about my success. In fact, I was listening to a podcast today where a woman was like, you know, sometimes we just need to pause and, and reflect on our success. And I think I am one of those people that actually I find it very hard to own my success. I'm very apologetic apologetic for my success sometimes. And I I really struggle to almost wear it as a badge of honor. I see it as something that I always try and downplay. And I, I don't know why that is, but I think that I would love to hear about how you have approached being comfortable with being successful with money, with talking about money. That's something that I would really love to learn from you, particularly as a woman. I think it's our currency to keep doing more in our lives and more good in the world. And part of being in these difficult rooms, Alice, that I'm sometimes, you know, I can find myself in kind of weird situations with prime ministers and billionaires or like whatever's going on. And I think we all have to wear our badges because men do. They just do. And I think we need to, back to my earlier point, we need to practice until we, don't, we, until we do not feel uncomfortable. We need to say, hi, I'm Alice. I'm a successful entrepreneur. I've built up three businesses and a podcast. I'm a multi-author and and just stop because that's what men do. And if we don't do that, 
then we're not showing up in the room in our prime as our full selves. And I really think that that's where good things happen. You know, you can spend quite a lot of your life being underestimated as a woman. And some of that I think you have to take responsibility for. I think you have to get really good at trotting out your CV in three sentences and not feeling embarrassed and recognize that when you're in a room that's majority male, which is where the rooms that I'm in most of the time, then I think there's an expectation that you'll do it. I think also there's a tremendous power that comes from being able to pay the bills yourself. And I wouldn't wish on anyone the sort of, my kids and I have had an amazing life, but you know, we have had an unconventional life. It's been me and the two of them for a long time. There's a tremendous empowerment that comes through necessity. You know, if I wasn't going to look after my kids, nobody else was. And my business has had to work because otherwise, in my grandmother's words, what were you, you know, you're going to lie on the street and not be able to pay the bills, right? So there's been quite a lot of tough love in my family. But I think that what that lands me with is do not feel shame for everything that you have grafted for, Alice, because you have done it and nobody's done it for you. So shout it from the bloody rafters. Be proud, right? Because from great things, more great things will come. But don't be embarrassed about everything that you've done because you've done it and nobody's done it for you. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna write that before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> Remember that. Um, you reference kids there, and actually, mm. that's something that I did want to ask you because I know that there will be people listening who are like, "Oh, I'd love to start a business, but I'm a mum of two or I'm a mum of three. Yeah. You've done that. You were a mum of two. You started your businesses when your kids were incredibly young. How did you navigate motherhood alongside this kind of really thriving and busy career look it's not easy um and I think it's important not to sugarcoat how it is but my experience was very specific um which was I was building a business to sell I was building businesses that raised significant amounts of capital and I was building international businesses that meant I was on a plane a lot not everybody wants that. Not everybody needs it. First chapter of our book is called Project You because I think one of the things that women don't do enough is to say, who am I and what do I want? Now, it might very well be that when women are getting started or they've got kids or what they want is a lifestyle business, what they want is a business that is smaller, bigger, medium-sized, it doesn't matter, but figure it out for you. I was very clear what I wanted and with that comes a lot of sacrifice. You know, I did, my children have had a peculiar life and that they've always come to work with me. They've always flown around the world to do things with me when they were babies that just came in. You know, I've always had childcare. I've absolutely needed it. When I flew to the US, which I did twice a month during my Albright life to the West Coast, which is pretty vile, I'd go for a, a night, one night there and one night on the plane to see the kids. So, you know, none of that is a tremendous amount of fun, but I also don't want that to sound like that's the only way to do it because it isn't. But if you are focused on building something big where you're taking large amounts of other people's money, it will be difficult. I suppose you figure out what your parameters are. And for mine, they were school plays and sports days and speech days and and I managed to just not miss them. Everything would sort of skew around that. I've always picked my kids up on a Friday. You know, there are certain rules that were my rules that wouldn't mm. be everyone's rules. But I just sort of had to say, okay, I want this and I need work-life blend. Because I don't think work-life balance is very possible. It's easy. And my kids are 15 and 13 now and they're taller than me and they 
you know, is this different? But when they were little, so what's your blend? Um, you know, Anna and I were, were fortunate when we did Albright and we, we've been two female founders, we empower female founders, we totally understand all of that. Speech days, childcare problems, school holidays have gone wrong. The kids have got, I mean, my kids have sat in the office with coloring books and things more times than you could care to remember. But I used to do that with my mum. So it's quite normal. And, and they have had an abnormal exposure to the world of work, which I hope stands them in good stead. My son wants to be an entrepreneur. He can pull together a 12 page deck for you and knows that, you know, they just, they know stuff that they sort of know through osmosis. If you work out what your non-negotiables are, it's possible. It's hard as possible. And on that point, I am just really interested to to understand your take on flexible working, um, working from home. How does that sit in how you approach supporting women, um, you know, with all those things that you mentioned, the childcare issues, the speech days, the sports days, whatever it is. Do you therefore believe that a flexible approach to working is better for women? Or do you actually think that being in the office, being amongst a team is, is actually going to be better in the long term. I can see you smiling. It's a difficult one. <laughs> well, I just gave a big speech on this that ended up being a bit controversial. So, I mean, look, uh, here are, I think, the positives about working from home and flexible work. Of course, everything I've described, speech days, sick child, pick up, drop off, I get it. One of the beautiful things about the pandemic was we saw into other people's homes. Men saw into our homes and we saw into theirs. We were allowed to talk about having kids. For years, I I would never have referenced my kids in a work conversation with men, ever. It was just not the dumb thing. They needed to sort of think I didn't have any. So it changed all of that. And here's my concern. All of the data that I flagged on women raising capital, on the gender pay gap, on the number of female CEOs in the FTSE has gone backwards since the pandemic. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And my deep concern, and I gave a big speech at something called the Women in Work Conference, which is a big event a month or two ago. And we had a show of hands and the mean um, days of week spent in the office by the women in the audience, I think there were 400 of them was somewhere between one and two. And I think that is a disaster for feminism because men are back full time. And I worry that if we are not in the room, we lose our voice in the room. We lose our place in the room. We set feminism back even further. And the facts that these stats slide are because what working from home can mean is women taking up even more of the mental load. If we are at home, we're taking on more of the childcare and more of the housework, whether we like it or not. So I am very torn on this. I also feel like for young women, they are not getting mentored in the right way. They are not doing everything that I did as a young 20-something, which was just watch, listen, see how they did it, kind of bank it, practice it. They're not getting that. And I think that we are easier to ignore if we are not there then I think the patriarchy continues to rule okay, and I don't like it. So it's complicated, but I err on the side of women showing up and having a voice. I also lead in the room that I really know how to do that. I don't think I was a very good at this in the pandemic. AJ was much better. I'm the kind of like stand on the table and say, right, everyone, this is how it's going to be leader. And I can't really do it in this way. And I think if we're not there, then we're not developing that muscle. It's very hard to lead in a crisis on Zoom. We all learn how to. So I just feel like I don't want us to lose our visibility. And I worry that we do, because I think in flexible working and working from home, women are doing that and men are not. 
I just think the government needs to sort out the childcare costs. But I do agree. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation that we could go into. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I can't keep you forever as much as I want to. And honestly, you're someone who I just wish I could have hours and hours of kind of like, but tell me this, Debbie, tell me that. <laughs> so I guess my final question is to throw it out to those who will be listening, because I'm sure that as probably as within me, I've sat here and listened and I feel almost this like palpable sense of excitement to get off the call and go and write down a load of ideas and really like, you know, I feel very motivated, inspired by you. I know that many people experience that when they speak you. If someone today is sitting here, they're listening, they're thinking, today's my day one. I have an idea. I have a business I want to start. I've got something that I want to do or I'm passionate about. What are those first steps that you think someone should take to set them off on the on, I guess, the best path they can with starting their own thing, particularly as a woman? I think do the work. Every business where I've had an idea and they've all come to me on a plane, in a hospital bed, wherever. I haven't just, even though it may seem that way, and actually AJ would disagree because she thinks I'm very impulsive. I haven't just gone, right, we're doing this. I've gone, right, sit online. What's out there? Where do I think the opportunity is? How could I price it? I still build my own Excel. You know, what's the model? How do I, is there margin? Find your personal board of directors who you can bounce things off. I'm very fortunate with AJ and she's the yin to my yang. She's also maths rain man. So, you know, we're looking at something, a different kind of business at the moment in the midlife space. And we've gone backwards and forwards on WhatsApp. We've done a model on our phone calculators and we've gone, yeah, there's some money there. Okay, so then what is it? She's numbers, I'm words, apart from when we're not. And then I do a thing and she does a model. And then we've got two pages. And then we go, okay. And then we go, let's build it, right? Which doesn't mean go and spend thousands of pounds on it, nor does it mean build that, by the way. It just means we do, we're quite visual. So we will go on just to like a logo generator and we'll build a thing and we'll do a thing and we'll build out who the and we'll have like a little mini proposal and then we'll look at it again and go do we believe it sometimes we don't at this stage and then we go would we write our own personal check which is, doesn't mean that we will it just means would I put my own money into this and if it's still a yes then we we do we put a little bit of money in to get it going and then we take it out to other people and we see what the thing is but we never just go right we're doing it without doing that piece of work so you've got to really care about the idea because if it is the thing you're going to be talking and thinking about it for a really long time so make sure you're kind of in love because you'll be much less in love with the idea by the end so be in love with it at the beginning but do the work do the work and then what's the worst that can happen right give it a go but generally now I mean it's slightly different because we're in a different position but I think if I was me at 25 I'd say oh give it a go if it was me at 40 I'd say explore it on the side you know keep earning the money keep doing what you've got to do but see whether there's a thing there but do the work that's really really good advice and I'll be doing it after this call <laughs> no I already feel like I'm on that journey but it's it's always just oh so brilliant when you hear from people who you really get that fire from and, and that kind of excitement to get off a call or get out of a meeting and go yeah that's what I'm gonna do you know it's been the best life even when it's been shit and um I did something else, Alice, another interview last week, the week before, about why am, <laughs> why am I still doing it? And like, what else would I do? You know? Like, mm. uh, 
the highs are so high and the lows are really low, but the highs are so high. Yeah. And you live for those moments. And that's life as well. That's not just business. That's life. The highs are high. The lows are pretty fucking shit. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, we, but we muddle through and we, you know, when you look back on your life, I hope, and, and I, I, am, I, I count myself as being the same as you. I am eternally optimistic. Oh gosh, this has been amazing. Debbie, thank you so much for your time. I know how incredibly busy you are. So I do really value giving up over an hour now for for this conversation to happen. If you want to check Debbie out, the LinkedIn influencer herself <laughs> on LinkedIn, or she is on uh, Instagram as well. Um, so we will put all of those in the show notes. Debbie, thank you so much. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you again soon. so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group